Let's pray as we, as we begin to open God's Word. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and bringing us here tonight. Thank you for the songs, the way we worshiped in singing to you, the way we're going to worship now with being in your Word, reading it, discussing and understanding. And I pray that our hearts would be soft now, open to hearing what you have for us individually and in, as a body. I pray your blessing on celebration of the Lord's Supper after the message and then our fellowship with our um, Thanksgiving feast after the service tonight. To you be glory. We love you, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. How many of you, question to start, how many of you enjoy air travel, like flying in jets? Am I? Okay, good. So I'm not alone. I have not had to travel for work much, um, but on the few occasions where I've had to, where I've had to travel, especially consecutive times um, within a month, um, I do not get sick of it. I, I don't know, maybe I'm an adrenaline junkie or something like that, but I love takeoff, landing. I could do that all day, every day, I think, and never get sick of it. Um, I probably would get sick of it, but I love it. One of the things that I love about air travel is um, I always try, like I work hard to get a window seat, even when we're traveling as a family. The few times that that's happened, I force my kids to sit in the middle seat and I take the window, um, and they end up on my lap because they're my children, so they see my, my nose glued to the window. Um, there's something about that perspective, looking down and flying over, and it doesn't matter if it's even the Midwest, um, corn circle after corn circle, it all looks the same, but I still sit there staring at it, going over the mountains. I've flown um, one time to Europe, and so going there and then coming back over Greenland, and um, for whatever reason, the way, it doesn't make any sense, I know that, but um, I look down like for, I think, six, eight hours looking for polar bears, um, as if I would be able to see a white bear, you know, 30,000 feet below me. Tonight we're going to take a short break from our series in the book of Acts to preach a four-sermon series on Advent. Advent means simply the coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus. So tonight in this series, um, because it's Christmas time, we are looking at the first Advent when Jesus first came um, 2,000 years ago, came to earth as a baby um, and gave, gave us the gospel and completed his mission for the first Advent. In Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel?, he says, The Bible is the story of God's counteroffensive against sin. It is the grand narrative of how God made it right, how he is making it right, and how he will one day make it right finally and forever. Paraphrasing another point from Greg Gilbert's book, In order for the good news, that's the gospel, in order for the good news to be really good, there has to be bad news. And as we're going to see tonight, the bad news is really bad. Those who have read and understood the, Bible, understood the Bible know that the bad news is bad, but the good news is wonderful, which brings us to the reason that we should celebrate this season. For our introduction tonight, we're going to focus on the big picture of Scripture. So tonight's message being the introduction to this series, we're going to focus on the big picture of, of Scripture that we might refer to as the meta-narrative, the big picture, the big story of the Bible. 
at the risk of potentially oversimplifying Scripture because it's a big book with a lot of nuances, we are going to try to simplify and we're going to spend time in Genesis um, in between passages and then we're even going to be in Revelation 21 and 22. My hope is that our work tonight on this big picture will enable us to understand and appreciate the specifics to a greater degree. So the first question, you see it on your handout there, why does the Scripture place such an emphasis on the necessity of a Savior? Why does it do that? Who or what needs to be saved? What is the danger exactly that we are expecting to be saved from? Do we need salvation? Do we really need it? Of course, we find the answers to these questions in Scripture. So tonight we will start in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So while you're turning there in your Bibles or your devices, let's preview our path forward tonight. We're going to review the meta narrative of the Bible, and you see in your outline three main points. What was supposed to be beauty, what was supposed to be creation, what was supposed to be. Any one of those can fill in that blank. Point number two is the bad news, what came to be. And point number three is the good news, a promise of redemption. So these four phases that you might be familiar with if you've been um, in the church for a long time or have been a believer, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So first of all, number one, creation. What was supposed to be? As we will see, we were not just given this broken world with no context for how it became this way. We didn't just show up here. God has given us a glimpse of what the world was before it was cursed. And at the end of Scripture, in Revelation, he gives us a promise of the same type of world renewed to its original perfection. So read with me Genesis 1, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green, pl- I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And, the ev- and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So, we might ask the question, what was the world supposed to look like? What was the blueprint for life outside of Adam and Eve sitting in the garden? We are familiar with that story. We know that Adam and Eve sinned almost immediately after, after creation. But if they hadn't, what was it supposed to look like? 
And how, how would we know that? So letter A, the vision for the garden and the world is a temple city. God's dwelling place was initially with man in the Garden of Eden. A high-level trace of God's dwelling place through the scriptures starts with God dwelling with man in the garden until Adam sins and severs that relationship. But then we find that God dwells with his people in the tabernacle. Then he dwells with his people in Solomon's temple. And now, presently, he dwells with his people in the church. We'll look at verses later tonight that talk about that. In the future, we are given a picture of God dwelling with man in the New Jerusalem. So moving to the opposite end of your Bible, you can turn there, Revelation 21, or just listen with me as I read. Revelation 21, the first three verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The parallels through Scripture between the tabernacle, the temple, and the New Jerusalem all synchronize with the description of Eden as a place where God dwelt. The vision for the world was to be a temple city, a dwelling place for God with his people. So what were his people supposed to be in this temple city? Letter B, the mandate for God's viceroys, dominion. So a viceroy, this was um, a somewhat unfamiliar word to me as I was studying for this, a viceroy is someone who rules on behalf of the king and is vested with a royal status. That's what Adam and Eve were given. They were priest kings. They were rulers. Mandated to rule the world on God's behalf. Adam is given access to God in the garden, and on behalf of God was to name all the animals. In Genesis, going back to verses 27 and 28, we see God commands humans to multiply and fill the earth, which we can understand to mean enlarging the garden. They are to work it and keep it. Note that he goes a significant step further than the similar command to the animals. The animals were commanded to multiply and fill the earth. But he commands humans, additionally, to subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing that moves. That's an important instruction that we're going to revisit in a few verses. This mandate to have dominion is combined with instruction to work the garden and to keep it. We see that work is a good gift from God before the world was cursed. The blueprint for humanity's existence at this time was to rule the earth on God's behalf with access to him and take this new, beautiful creation that's summarized repeatedly by God's words, good very good, and grow it into a place for God to dwell with humanity forever. But as we said earlier, the bad news is really bad. So instead, what came to be? Genesis 3, read with me verses 1 through 7. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So letter A, death in exchange for knowledge. The snake approaches Eve in this familiar narrative that you have probably heard before, that you've probably read countless times. The Bible describes him as a crafty animal, which is backed up because the snake's first trick is to talk, which is obviously an unusual thing. Eve is tempted and obeys God's command to not eat of this particular tree. She then gives the fruit to her husband, and they both receive the knowledge that the snake had promised, as well as death, because the snake had lied to them. Let her be submission instead of dominion, continuing with the bad news. You see, their disobedience of God's command is bad, but it might even be worse than what we've been used to thinking. It's treason. See, Adam didn't simply eat the last apple from the family fruit basket against the direction of his father. He gave the keys of the, to the front door of his father's house to his father's arch enemy. And this enemy hates Adam's father. And he was intent on destroying his father's legacy by entering his home and killing his children. The sin committed in the garden was not a simple overspend. It was not a mere failing to heed God's instruction, not to say that that's a mere thing at all. Rather, it was treason. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they submitted to the serpent's reasoning. They took the enemy of God and fulfilled his wishes rather than God's. They submitted to his request and treated him as the one having authority and knowledge and divine moral insight. Their actions indicate that they doubted God's words to them to the point that they believed the serpent's words. Instead of having dominion over every creature, they permitted a creature to exercise manipulation and dominion over them. And this act of disobedience was, of course, to the detriment of the entire cosmos. The result of this treason was eviction instead of intimacy. So read God's words in response to this, this sin in the garden. And listen for a couple things as we read. There is judgment and punishment here for sure, but there's also grace. That is a miraculous thing. Genesis 3, starting in verse 16, God responds after, after discovering Adam and Eve's sin. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see that God's response to Adam and Eve's sin is justice and grace. Justice in separating humankind from God's presence, which would prevent the contamination of God's perfect holiness with their broken sinfulness of the now corrupted humans. But grace, because the perfection of God would endanger any human who came close to it. Exodus 3, verse 5. Justice in the punishment of Eve with the desire to usurp her God-given authority in response to their usurping of God's authority. Justice in Adam's required toil to provide food from the ground and justice in his foretold death. To dust you shall return. Verse 19. But grace is present here. God makes for them skins from animals killed notably different than the skins that they made themselves out of plants. God sheds blood to meet their needs of covering their nakedness. God evicts Adam and Eve from the garden to prevent them from also partaking of the tree of life and thereby cursing themselves with eternal life in their broken state. He saves them from that. The bad news is really bad. Something so perfect and so wonderful was ruined So now what? Point number three is the gospel, the good news. It's a promise of redemption. So as we continue our flight over Scripture, as we look down on the biblical narrative from our window seat in this jet, we fast forward over Israel's history, over Psalms, over countless prophets, And we see this creation beauty that has been ruined by the fall and sin. We see judgment and death. In the chapters following, we immediately see Adam and Eve's offspring spiral into violence and death. Where they, within only a couple generations, are bragging about their ability to kill each other. We see God's people selected and over the course of well over a thousand years, anticipating and waiting for the promised snake head crusher, the Messiah, this conquering offspring. 
As we fly at this airspeed 500 miles an hour through biblical history, we fly over Israel's history, and all the potential heroes seem to have promise and then fail to be the dragon slayer that we are hoping for. We reflect on the promise God gave to Adam and Eve and the serpent after their treason against him. So what is all this about this offspring who's a dragon slayer? Go back to Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. Here we see the promise of a second Adam. Where Adam, the first Adam, where Adam failed, one of Eve's descendants would succeed. Genesis 3, verses 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of this offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So where is this head crusher? Where is this savior? Letter B is the gospel. Victory over this evil dragon. As we said earlier, the gospel means good news. Back in the airplane window seat, we look down, and unexpectedly, we see the development of this baby born in Bethlehem. That's what this season is about. That's what we are celebrating. It does make sense of the signs that we saw when we flew over Israel's history, promises about the offspring of David and prophecies from many of God's prophets. These flashbacks come and go. This baby becomes a man. And almost too good to be true, he starts to do what Adam failed to do. He exercises dominion. He casts out demons from people who are tormented by them. Not in a pleading voice, not asking, but with authority, like the first Adam should have in hindsight. He has authority over everything. Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17. That evening they brought to him, talking about Jesus here, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In the next chapter, Matthew 9, verse 32, and as, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Back in the window seat, as this jet that we're on slows down to carefully fly over the ministry of Jesus, we observe three years of him healing, serving, teaching, loving, and praying. And maybe we expect that the dragon will be slain in some climactic showdown. Let us see victory over death and hell. What we observe instead, instead of this climactic showdown between Jesus and Satan, is that Jesus' victory over death was not primarily about killing the dragon or the revenge from Genesis 3. Instead, Jesus' first advent climaxes in victory over death and the rescue of his people, which is in itself a victory over the efforts of Satan to kill God's children. 
Jesus' first advent was to make his people right with God and enable them to become an individual, a community of individual priests once again. Paul explains the distinction between the first Adam, the Adam who sinned in the garden, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in two passages that we want to look at right now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of God, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul's articulating this distinction between the first Adam who represented us in his sin in the garden and who we have inherited his sin, that punishment, and then the second Adam, Jesus, who, when we are joined with him by faith and repentance, represents us and we, are, we receive his righteousness. We inherit the consequences of Adam's treason in the garden. We who are joined to the second Adam by faith will receive the grace and have his righteousness cover all of our sins. Listen as you read, as I read the same idea from Romans 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth that although our natural father Adam failed in the garden to fulfill his mandate, the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded and secured for those who trust in him hope, eternal life, and he covers us with his righteousness. So here's the meta-narrative of Scripture. There should be a slide for us to look at, and I'm not sure how, how visible it is. You can see it if you're sitting up, uh, if you're blessed enough to be sitting up close. So, if you're visual like me, this is the meta-narrative of Scripture. This is what we've just discussed. Creation, followed by the fall, followed by the gospel, redemption, and then there's, a, there's that bullet that says we are here in between redemption and consummation. Consummation is us looking forward to the second advent when Jesus returns. So wrapping up, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with, um, with the Christmas season? The celebration of Advent is reminiscent for me to one of my favorite scenes in literature. In C.S. Lewis's popular book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that I'm sure many of you have read. Midway through that book, where the snow is melting in Narnia, Narnia, where it has always been, where it's been always winter and never Christmas, for hundreds of years, in this scene, Jadis, the evil, self-proclaimed queen of Narnia, is losing control, and she knows it. And although she's not dead yet, she sees that her temporary dominion of Narnia is coming to an end. 
but in frustrated denial, she screams at Edmund and her dwarf slave, Trumpkin, to manipulate them into being as delusional as she is. As repeated in that chapter of the story, everyone in Narnia consents, even Jadis consents, that Aslan is on the move. There's this sense of imminence. Something big is about to happen. This is what we celebrate in the weeks leading up to Christmas. We celebrate this reality that the baby, the snake killer, is here. He's about to do something that we've been looking forward to for hundreds of years. During Advent, we celebrate the ultimate dragon slayer is born and his final victory is imminent. In reality, 2021, we live 2,000 years after the gospel work of redemption actually happened. Most of us have heard stories about soldiers who didn't receive news that the war they were fighting was over. Sometimes this even results in battles being fought between two sides who were not aware that surrender had already taken place. Most recently, some of these stories have come out of remote islands in Asia where World War II veterans, um, typically Japanese veterans, continue to be at war with no actual conflict for years and even decades until finally someone stumbles upon their island and informs them, oh, that war has been over for, for 50 years. Aside from the Christmas and Advent celebration, we humans live between two episodes of the grand narrative of history. Going back to this meta-narrative slide behind me, we are stuck between that redemption and consummation. We are between the already and the not yet. We are looking back at the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which occurred during his first advent. We are also looking forward to Christ's second advent, where he will return, and all people will know that he is indeed king, and every knee will bow to worship him. In his first coming, he demonstrated dominion over evil forces by healing blind, sick, and raising the dead. Jesus' death on the cross, whereupon he secured victory over the curse of our sin by atoning for our sin's penalty of death. His resurrection three days later secures victory over death itself. Death is dead. The gospel is the good news that he now extends his victory to anyone who repents and places their faith in his saving grace. The victory has been won at the cross. That is the climax of the story. That is why Scripture makes a big deal about the necessity of a Savior, because that's the point of the story. For us today, most of us know this truth. And as I was thinking about this, there's probably not a lot in this message that you have heard for the first time. And as Jason and I were discussing this week, um, if there is a lot of new stuff in a sermon, that might be a, a bit of a warning sign. What we often need is not necessarily teaching. We need reminding. Most of us know these truths. So as a reminder, there are a lot of enemy soldiers out there who don't know that the war is over and they are still fighting. They are on the wrong side of history, but they still shoot to kill. They're willing to die for their tyrannical commander, this ancient dragon. For now, there is hope for them 
Because upon hearing and believing the gospel, many of these will surrender with joy, filled relief that they can be set free from bondage and servitude to that evil dictator. And they will be given the new uniform of Christ's righteousness and welcomed into God's forever family. These soldiers need only to hear and believe the good news that the dragon is defeated, death is dead, and their salvation from sin is secured in Christ if they're willing to place their faith in him alone for their salvation. There's also an encouraging note for believers who look forward with anticipation to the second advent, where Jesus will return and will finalize the rescue of the cosmos. That encouragement is that we are not alone. We are not the first ones to look for and long for God's coming. We are not the first ones to anticipate and even doubt that it would ever happen. We have no reason to doubt because he promised the first coming and was faithful to do it. Furthermore, as we've seen a lot in the book of Acts over these last couple weeks, we have God's Spirit with us now which testifies that his word is true. It is in the light of the first advent that we can long for and expect the second advent, the return of Jesus, to proclaim the victory that he has already secured and lead us out of this environment of brokenness and into the forever city, that new Jerusalem. Joy to the world. Amen.